Well, I invite you to take God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 4, please, once again. So Philippians 4, and as you find your place, I add my own words of welcome to all who have gathered, for those who are visiting with us, and those who are watching online as well. And we trust that the Lord will even encourage your heart to pray over these matters that have been announced. We believe the Lord has led us this way, and as Reverend Greer said, there's an open door into these nursing homes. When we started last summer again, we reintroduced the outreach open air, and that will continue on this summer, in the summer months, and then uh, where we feel the Lord would lead us even to these nursing homes. So pray about that very especially. The Lord will direct your heart and give you a desire to go in there, uh, even to bring the gospel to those in the homes. Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse number 8, and read some verses together, and then look to the Lord in prayer. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, Brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Amen. And we'll end there at verse 13, and we trust the Lord will bless the public reading of His Word to our heart. Let's just bow in prayer, and once again, just still ourselves before the Lord as we come to the principal means of grace, and pray that the Lord will draw near and help us even in the ministry of the Word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Father, we thank Thee for Thy presence. Thank the Lord for being able to praise Thee, to lift up our voices and worship the great God of heaven in this manner. We thank the Lord for prayer and the access we have unto thy throne of grace. Rejoice in thy Son and the merit of his precious blood. And we thank the Lord that we have gathered round your word now to hear what the Lord himself would have to say. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray, O God, that you would grant unto this preacher fresh cleansing in the precious blood, that thou would fill me with the Spirit. And once again, what thou hast given in the study, the Lord sought to tread it out to seek the meaning of it, that you would give me help in the delivery. I pray, O God, for open hearts, receptive minds. I pray that the Holy Ghost will come and apply the word. And Lord, that thou be glorified in it all. Lord, we pray that you would leave us not to go through the motions of religion. Lord, we pray that you will speak in living, in that living way to our souls. Lord, hear us, and Lord, answer our prayer. For this we asked in the Saviour's worthy and His precious name. Amen. For a number of Lord's days we have been considering the opening nine verses of Philippians 4 and advice the Apostle Paul was giving believers on how they could stand fast in the Lord and demonstrate that they truly were citizens of the celestial city. He gave them exhortation concerning harmony, ecstasy, humility, Anxiety and a final word of advice concerning right thinking, which always leads to right living. 
And that's what we were looking at the last time from verses 8 and 9. See, following this advice would mean that they would possess and know the protection of the peace of God and also be assured of the presence of the God of peace. What more could a child of God want? This is the secret to a happy and a contented life. Granted, not a problem-free life, for we live in a fallen world with its trials and we are yet imperfect, but a life that knows a peace that the world did not give and the world cannot take away. Now, the worldling is one who has uh, no peace, is devoid of peace. So many are dissatisfied with their lot in life and disgruntled with what they have or what they are. Now, I don't know if you know, but next Monday, the 15th, is known as Blue Monday. It's a name that's given to the third Monday in January, uh, which is said to be the most depressing day of the year. This concept was first published in 2005 and claimed that the day was calculated using an equation. The formula uses many factors, including weather conditions, debt level, salary, time since Christmas, time since the New Year's resolutions were broken, uh, low motivational levels, and the need, the feeling of the need to do something about it. But it all really comes down to a spirit of discontentment among people. One man made the comment that all the world lives in one of two tents, content or discontent. Now, coming to our verses this morning, the word but we notice at the, verse, at the start of verse 10, it does not imply a term of contrast with what, what, is, with what has gone before. Rather, it introduces a new section. The apostle stops directly exhorting and begins the conclusion of his letter. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Once again, from his own life's experience, Paul is going on to show these believers that he's a man who practiced what he preached. He lived out the truth of what he believed, the gospel. It impacted him, it affected him, and it changed him. This was all not theoretical knowledge to him, but he truly possessed the peace of God. He was content with his lot in life. Now, to summarize and to contextualize what Paul is saying here in verse 10 and also in verses 14 to 16, which we didn't read, it has been really 10 years since the Apostle Paul he visited that city of Philippi and established a church there. The Philippians had generously supported him when he left Philippi to minister in the Macedonian cities of Thessalonica and Berea, and that's recorded for us in Acts 17, verses 1 to 13. And he mentions about that in verses 15 and 16 on down in the chapter here. When Paul moved south into Achaia, the Philippians, they continued their support as he ministered in Athens and Corinth. But as years passed, they had, yes, they had been consistently concerned with the apostle, but they lacked opportunity to provide support for him. But recently an opportunity arose, and they sent Epaphroditus with a gift to Paul as he was there imprisoned in Rome. And Paul, he rejoiced greatly in that gift. The apostle says that their care for him 
flourished, it blossomed, it budded at the last, and he is responding to their gift. He expresses his gratefulness here. And that's one of the reasons why he's writing this letter. He feels honored that they're thinking about him, that they cared enough to send a gift that was an evidence of their love for him. But above all, it caused Paul to rejoice in the Lord. You see, he viewed, he traced everything back to the hand and the heart of his God. It was God who loved him. It was God who cared for him. It was the Lord who had put it within the heart of these people to send a gift unto him. Now Paul, as he tells us here in verse 11, he didn't have an agitated spirit. He was not dissatisfied nor disgruntled. He didn't have an itch which he couldn't scratch, wondering, why have these people not sent me a gift sooner? But he says, not that I speak in respect of want. Paul may have been in prison, but the peace of God held captive his heart. He had a deep-seated contentment. He was to them and to us a perfect example of what it means to be content in Christ. And that's the title, that's the heading that I want to consider, verses 11 and 12 under this morning, content in Christ. Just two points this morning. It might shorten it a little bit, but it'll be over at the usual time. Firstly, consider that this contentment was acquired. It was acquired. Paul was content, and this temperament was something that he had come to acquire. Look at verse 11 again. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now, we have some understanding of what the English word content means. To give you a dictionary definition, it is to be in a state of peaceful happiness, willing to accept a particular thing to be satisfied. Well, that's what man would define it as. But we have a Greek word here. And this Greek word, translated content, it's only found here in the New Testament. It's a compound word, and it literally means self-sufficient. It conveys the idea of being independent of external circumstances and independent of all people. It describes an individual who needs nothing externally to be satisfied in life, for all he or she needs is within now, really, in a strict sense, this is a word, this is an attribute that can only be applied to God, who is God all-sufficient, El Shaddai. But what the Apostle Paul does in these verses is he takes a word that is well-known, a pagan word, word that is well-known, content, which is used commonly by Stoic philosophers of the day, who taught that man, by exerting the power of his mind, will be able to resist the shock of whatever circumstances or conditions he might encounter and experience. And the Apostle Paul, he takes this word and he gives it a Christ-centered meaning. He explains here that he's self-sufficient, that there's nothing without, whether poverty or persecution or pearl or plenty or prosperity, that could shake the peace of God that he had within his soul, which garrisoned his heart and his mind. Now, this was not the result of the power exerted by himself, mind over matter, but through the power of Christ who dwelt in him by the Spirit. 
Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote the Christian classic, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He defined it as this contentment, that sweet inward peace, that gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, Paul was often in need, but he was not a needy person. He was a man who, by the grace of God, was independent of his outward circumstances. He was a contented man, and here he tells us of his, uh, gives testimony to that fact. But this is something that he learned. Matthew Henry, he says that we have here an account of Paul's learning, not that which he got at the feet of Gamaliel, but that which he got at the feet of Christ. You see, to learn something implies that there is a teacher. And of course, the Lord Jesus said, the one who would teach his people and guide them into all truth is the Holy Ghost. And Paul explains here that the contentment of which he speaks is something that must be learned. I have learned. It's not something that you and I have by nature. It's acquired. You see, the natural man is carnal and always at enmity with God. As sinners, man's natural disposition is to restlessness, agitation that is within the heart, which is the opposite of contentment. Sinners, they're described in Isaiah 57, verse 20, as the troubled sea, when it cannot rest. But this is not what God created man at the beginning. You well know that Adam was created, he was made in the image and the likeness of God in a moral and a spiritual sense. And we understand from the Scripture that God is supremely and eternally blessed in His being. He is self-sufficient, and in Him there is no discontentment. And this is how Adam must have been at the beginning, at peace, satisfied, and content. But that all changed. See, when Satan, he tempted Adam, the mystery of iniquity rose up within his heart. And that spirit of rebellion was manifested by his discontentment of the position that God had created for him to to occupy, for he desired something more. He desired to be as God. He became discontent with what God gave him and what God allowed him to eat, and he stretched forth his hand. He was dissatisfied. He wanted more. He disobeyed God, and he took the forbidden fruit. And ever since, the spirit of discontentment has been in this world. I read this comment. All things that God has made are content to be where he has put them, except the children of Adam. God has done more for us than for any other of His creatures, and we ought to be the most contented of all, and yet we are generally the most discontented. The fish are content with the water. The birds are content with the air. The trees of the forest are content to grow where God has put them. So is a little flower that blooms unnoticed on the side of the bleak mountain, yet we are often filled with discontent. Discontentment is a remnant of the old man, the old sinful nature, and an effect of the fall. Therefore, it is a sin. It is a sin to be resisted. It is a sin to be purged out of the life. It is a sin over which to gain the victory. 
And Paul had done that. But Paul was just a man. He was not immune to discontentment. He, like the rest of us, had a mind and a heart as prone to impatience and discontent. And that's why he says he needed to learn to be content, and he did. The apostle, he does not say here, I have heard that in whatsoever state I am, I should be content. No, he says, I have learned. And here we're shown that it's not enough for us And not enough for the Christian to hear their duty. They must learn their duty and work it out in their life. God commands His people to be content. It is our duty. Hebrews 13 verse 5, Let not your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. Now that verse there, it's not merely talking about life's possessions, but also life's position. Paul's spiritual contentment was not something that he had immediately after he was saved. No, he had to learn. The words have learned are in a construction in the Greek which speaks of an entrance into a new condition. And we could read it like this, I have come to learn. Paul had not always known contentment, but he had to go through many experiences, easy and difficult to learn what it was to be content. The apostle, now being enlightened and indwelt by the Spirit, and having an eye upon the mark and the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, was able to look at life and all that happened to him, both bad and good, through the corrective lens of eternity. He writes for believers in Rome not to minimize their suffering and affliction, but to put it in a proper perspective in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. And he says unto them, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see, this kept him from the viewpoint that if we are only those who in this life have hope, well then we are of all men most miserable. But this kept him from being agitated. This is how you and I should view life, through the lens of eternity. Paul, he believed in a sovereign God, that all the providences of life were under his control. He had many times faced unpleasant experiences, but God, he used them for good. You take, for example, the time he went through the storm in the Mediterranean Sea, and the ship was wrecked, and he was washed up upon the island of Melita. But I believe that God had a people there, and Paul was able to demonstrate to them the mighty power of Christ. Paul was often driven out of many places by persecution, but this led him on to encounter other people to which he witnessed of Christ. He had come to learn that God truly does work things all together for good to them that love the Lord. And this brought him into a state of contentment. Albert Albert Barnes, he made the comment, A contented mind is an invaluable blessing and is one of the fruits of religion in the soul. It arises from the belief that God is right in all His ways. Why should we be impatient, restless, discontented? What evil will be remedied by it? 
What once supplied, what calamity removed. Paul was enrolled in the school of life, just like all of us. He was, as a child of God, under the tutorage of the Holy Ghost. And after many years as an old man, he acquired the diploma of contentment. He uses the verb here, to be. It's in the present tense. I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. It's in the present tense. And that speaks of a continuous, habitual condition. This was a statement of fact. This wasn't a figment of this man's imagination. He graduated, achieving contentment, and this very epistle approves it, uh, proves it because, remember, he's the one who was sitting in a prison, and yet he was the one who was rejoicing in the Lord. He says here, I, I have learned. It's emphatic in the Greek. It's as if Paul says, you know, I leave it to others if they will be discontent. But for me, for my part, I have learned by the teaching of the Holy Spirit and the dealings of providence to be content with my lot in life. And sometimes there is no other way to learn this grace but to go through the trials of life. Now we have a parallel phrase here in verse 12. Paul says in verse 11, I have learned, but in verse 12, he also says, I am instructed. The phrase that means, well, I am initiated into. And Paul uses here the Greek mystery, religions, the Gnostics, who claim to a special knowledge of deep divine secrets possessed only by the initiated. And Paul had found a secret, the mystery to contentment, which others searched for in the wrong place. He found it in Christ. Christ was his sufficiency. And having Christ, Paul had enough. I asked you this morning, is Christ enough for you? Remember the story about one of the accounts on the Isle of Lewis in Revival. There's a man, he was well known for playing the bagpipes and he had played them at social gatherings and dances and, well, he came to faith, but he went back to playing the bagpipes and his sister looked at him and says, is Christ not enough? Is Christ not enough? And he put them down and he left off his playing in the socials and in the dances on that day. For Christ is enough. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 8, Paul, he writes there, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye having sufficiency, or, or that ye always having all sufficiency in all things. And that word sufficiency there is one of the Greek words that makes up this word content. You know, it's easy for us to sing the words of Joseph Gilmer's great hymn. But do we know the reality of what verse 3 says? Lord, I would place my hand on thine, nor ever murmur nor repine, content whatever lot I see since tis my God that leadeth me. You as Christians, we should take encouragement from these words of Paul, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. We too can learn. We too can acquire this continual disp disposition whereby we are content. 
with the peace of God ruling and reigning in our hearts, no matter our external circumstances. This is not some hidden secret or knowledge. It is not that we become self-sufficient, but Christ-sufficient, and we are content in Him. This contentment was acquired. My second point this morning, this contentment was applied. It was applied in this apostle's life. Now, we're not to think that Christian contentment is simply indifference. Some might adopt the attitude, well, if I don't think about those things, well, then I'll not be bothered about those things. Or that it's some sort of passive acceptance of the situation. Contentment is not fatalism, which simply says, you know, whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera. The old song. Being content does not mean that the individuals shouldn't seek to better themselves or their condition. That's not the case. The Bible never presents such an attitude to life. Paul, while trusting in the Lord and in the hand of God, well, he made his appeals to higher authorities to Caesar. He tried to get out of situations that he found himself in. Nor does the Bible suggest that we should be content with unsatisfactory conditions and not seek to improve our circumstances by fair and legitimate means. But if we cannot, and if we're left in those trying and difficult circumstances, then we are not to be mastered by them. We're not to be controlled by them. They are not to determine our misery or our joy. Rather, because of our union with Christ, we can be content in it. Christian contentment is applying the truth of what we have and are in Christ as taught by the Spirit to the circumstances we face and find ourselves in. And that's what Paul did. And he already alluded to that fact that no matter the situation in life, he was content. He says there in verse 11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am. And that's a general statement covering all situations. But then he expands on that in verse 12. For he says, I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. And everywhere and in all things I am instructed, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He gives a few examples of the situations in which he applied this grace of contentment, which he had come to learn. He says twice, I know. I know how. He had got it. He's living it out. He has applied what he has learned to the various states in which he found himself. He says, firstly here, verse 12, I know both how to be abased. Abased. Here's a man who knows what it is to be humbled. To be treated with indignity and contempt. To be trampled upon by man. To suffer hardships and distress. You think of the time when he was in the jail at Philippi. He was able to sing the praises of God at night. He was brought low, and yet he was still content. Why? Why? Well, he knew that someday he would sit with Christ on high. That the Lord would vindicate him before all the enemies and say, well, this is my child. Yes, Paul was brought low many a time. Men trampled upon him, but one day God would vindicate him. God would say, this is my child. God would honor him. Same for us. Men may treat us with indignity. 
They may trample upon us, despise us. But don't forget, child of God, someday God will vindicate you. God will honor you before the nations of this world, before his enemies and our enemies, and say, that's my child. We'll be elevated to sit and reign and rule with Jesus Christ. He also says that he knew what it was to abound. This word abound is used twice in, in verse 12. And I believe the first time that it's used, it's used in relation to being held in esteem by men. Because it's placed there in opposition to the word abased. It can also be translated as excel. It comes from a root word which means to be superior. And Paul also knew what it was to be well thought of. To be treated with respect and dignity. I refer back to the time in Melita as an example. But even in such times, Paul did not get carried away. It didn't stir up within him a desire for that need to be, or to receive the adulation of men. No, no, he was content. Why? Well, Paul knew that the admiration of men, it doesn't really mean anything. For one day men can be praising you, and the next day men can be criticizing you. But Paul knew that one day, all that really mattered is that he would hear the well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. He was interested rather in what God would say. And so Paul was content whether men abased him, treated him with disrespect and indignity and trampled upon him, or whether men respected him within the church and thought well of him there as he did in Melita and thought he was as a god. Paul was a level contented Christian. Because he kept his eyes on eternity. The apostle goes on to add the phrase there in, in verse 12. He says, everywhere and in all things. Once again, a general statement to indicate it didn't matter where or in what situation he found himself. He was content. And he goes on then to say that he knew what it was to be full and hungry. He writes to those in Corinth, if you want to turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 4 and verse 11. This man knew what it was to have a full belly and an empty belly. But he writes here in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 11. And he tells them there, Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. Why was Paul content in such a situation? Well, he understood that the life is more than meat and the body more than raiment. And that his heavenly Father knew every need that he had. You know, if you're of Christ, it doesn't matter if you're sitting down to a steak or a roast beef dinner or a slice of toast. Thomas Guthrie, the founder of the Free Church of Scotland, he was walking past an old cottage one day and he heard a voice shout from within. He peered into the window and he saw a poor man in a sparsely furnished little room sitting at a table with a piece of bread and a glass of water upon the table. The poor man looked at his meager meal and he cried out with gratitude, This and Jesus Christ. This and Jesus Christ. If I have Jesus, Jesus only, I possess a cluster red. 
you and I might not have what others have. You and I might not fare sumptuously every day, but whatever we have, sitting down to your me, this and Jesus Christ, I have this and Jesus Christ. Finally, the apostle, he knew what it was to be content when he abounded. That is, when he did not want for anything materially, and even when he suffered need. Now, you might think, you know, it's easy to be content if you have plenty. But I was once asked of the millionaire John D. Rockefeller how much money would be enough for him. He thought for a moment and then he answered, just one more dollar. He wasn't content. The apostle viewed life through the teaching of his master, that a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. He wrote to Timothy, that is Paul, 1 Timothy 6 verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's great gain. You see, being content, it adds, it's gain. You possess a treasure when you are content. On the flip side, it means a discontentment. Well, it's a subtractor. It takes from your life. It'll rob you, and so it does. It'll rob you off your joy. It'll take from you a quiet and a peaceable spirit. You'll give up days and moments and hours to murmuring and complaining, stressing and fretting time away that you'll never get back. It'll take from you. A discontented person is an unhappy person, and no one likes being around an unhappy person. And so you'll lose company. Being discontent, it takes from you. But being content, godliness with contentment is great gain. One man said, contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. Paul had an inheritance reserved for him. That's why it didn't matter if his bank balance fluctuated up or down. He knew what it was to abide to not want anything materially. He also knew what it was to suffer need, to have maybe no two shackles to rub together. This man knew it all. But it didn't bother him because he had an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for him. He had treasures laid up in heaven where moth and rust doth not corrupt, nor thieves break through and steal. And so in plenty or in poverty, this man was content. You see, the apostle applied all that he believed, all that he knew and he had in Christ to every situation. He viewed all things through the lens of Scripture in the light of eternity, and he was able to say, I know the secret. I am content in Christ, and having Him, I possess all things. This contentment was acquired. This contentment was applied. We are to be content, brethren and sisters, for here's the reason. Here's the reason. He hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. If you're discontent as a Christian, I would encourage you to confess that to God. Is there an itch you can't get at in your life? 
some agitation within your soul, will you confess it to the Lord? Ask Him to take it away from you because it will take from you. It will fill you with bitterness. It will eat you up. It will sour the blessings that you do have if you're only thinking about the things you don't have. Learn to be content. Come into this disposition of spirit that you'll always be content, no matter what state or condition or circumstance that comes to you, to be free from external influences and be content in Christ. Draw grace from Him. Lean upon His strength. Follow divine advice and the peace of God which passeth all understanding will also keep your heart and mind. Fanny Crosby, the great hymn writer, wrote these words which epitomizes her contentment with her lot in life. What a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot. And I won't. Which tent? Are you living in as you pitch it every day near home, Christian? Content or discontent? The pillow in the tent of content is the peace of God. Let us learn. In whatsoever situation we find ourselves in, therewith to be content. Content in Christ. Was there ever a more contented man than Christ? With his lot in life, he was able to say, I delight to do thy will. What was that? Well, the cross. It was there always before him, and yet he was content. He was anointed with joy and gladness above his fellows. He had a real peace in his soul, for he was doing the will of the Father. Contentment is Christ-likeness. And contentment is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be content in Him. Having Him, we possess all things. Let's bow in prayer. Let's look to the Lord to bless His Word to our heart. Heavenly Father, we bow in Thy presence. And often the spirit of the old man would rise up discontent with the portion, the lot that we have. Lord, we are encouraged from Paul. For he was just a man. And yet he was able to testify that by the grace of God, he had learned what it was to be content. He had come into the knowledge and into the condition of being continually happy and at peace and satisfied in his God. We pray that that will be our experience. Lord, this life is hard. It's difficult. We do not diminish the things that come across our pathway. But Lord, help us to view them in the light of eternity. Through the lens of Scripture. And who and what we are in Christ Jesus. Lord, bless thy people. Help us to be a contented people in 2024. Lord, being content then will be happy. We'll be happy with our lot in life, and people will see that. 
People will see we have a peace that garrisons our heart and our mind. We'll know that the God of peace is with us. Oh, Father, Lord, help us to rejoice. There's many things in this world that, Lord, that we cannot say we're happy with. We see the old adversary. We see wicked men. These things come against us. But, Lord, help us to be content in thee. And help us to rejoice in thee. And help us to trace everything to thy hand and to thy heart. So, Lord, remember the word. Bless us, Lord, as we gather round the table in a few moments. And then, Lord, throughout the afternoon, as seasons of prayer would be held, O God, that thy presence will be known and felt. We pray, O God, for this evening meeting in the gospel, O Father, that thou would bless and give power. And that souls will be brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, hear our prayer. Remember those who will gather round the table. For those who go on their onward journey, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of thy people, even now and forevermore. For I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.